Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, September 4th, 2022, and this is show number 904. Well, the next Apple announcement event is scheduled for Wednesday, 7 September at 10 a.m. Pacific time. And as always, Steve and I will be in the live chat room at podfeet.com slash chat during the event. We hope you'll join us. We don't broadcast any video or audio. We'll be text chatting along with the rest of you. If you've never been to the chat room before, the link I just said, podfeet.com slash slack, will take you to Discord on the web where you can sign up for Discord to view and participate. Once you have an account, you can also get into the Discord from podfeet.com slash live. I really hope you'll come. It's a lot of fun. The Nocilla Castaways chatter away. and We talk about the prices and what we think things are cool and whether Federighi's hair was exciting this time. I mean, it's, it's super useful. Anyway, we have a great time and we hope you'll join us. This week, I had the pleasure of being on the Daily Tech News Show on Tuesday, where Tom, Sarah, and I talked about the new Twitter Circles feature to allow you to tweet just to your close friends. We also talk about a new social media app in China called Soul that doesn't allow you to use your real likeness. You have to use an avatar. The California legislature just unanimously passed a regulation with the goal of protecting users under 18 on social media platforms, but it turns out there's a lot of debate about whether this is actually good law. We got into that discussion really deep, and you can check it all out at dailytechnewsshow.com, and that's episode number 4344. This week, you're actually going to get two chit-chat across the ponds. As if I hadn't had enough fun with Tom on Daily Tech News Show, I had him on chit-chat across the pond this week to talk about a recent study published by Sweden's biggest car magazine, the study time drivers and how long it took them to perform a set of prescribed functions in a variety of cars with touchscreens and one vehicle without any touchscreen at all. This is an interesting episode because Tom and I disagree quite a bit on this episode, and we both keep trying to make our points, and neither one of us convinces the other one that the other one is correct. The only thing we do agree with is that there are a lot of flaws in this study, but it is still a really interesting topic to think about whether touchscreens are a good thing or a bad thing versus dials and knobs. And as I said during this episode, I can sit alone in a room and have that argument with myself. If you want to watch this, or I'm sorry, if you want to listen to this, find Chit Chat Across the Pond number 741, and it's a Chit Chat Across the Pond light, of course, with Tom Merritt on touchscreens versus buttons in cars. For our second Chit Chat Across the Pond, we've got Barbu Schatz back with Programming by Stealth 139 of X. In our last installment of PBS, Bart started teaching us how to bundle an app slash website into uh, using our bundler of choice, Webpack. The app or website he's creating for us in these lessons is very simplified, but it's intended to allow us to exercise every one of the kinds of things we would probably want to bundle. This week, we, feature, we finish all of the tools he wanted to teach us to bundle. In PPS 138, the previous episode, after explaining to us why we would want to do this bundling thing in the first place and how to initialize things, he taught us to import a pure JavaScript library with jQuery as an example and a pure CSS library with basic bootstrap as the example. In this week's show, we learn how to install and use Mustache for templating in a Webpack world. The process is quite a bit different from how we originally learned to implement Mustache in Programming by Stealth about 50% of PBS ago is when we first learned to do that. Then we learn how Bootstrap 5 now lets us import just what we need instead of all of Bootstrap. We need some fancy icons, so Bart teaches us about Bootstrap icons, which he now favors for free icons over Font Awesome. 
Our web, our web app wouldn't be complete if we didn't have a fun font, right? So we learned to import free fonts from a uh, source called Font Source, and we do that all with Webpack. Like the first half of the Webpack worked example, Bart's process of doing repetitive actions but for different reasons definitely helped cement the concepts for me. You can find Bart's fabulous tutorial show notes over at pbs.bartofisser.net, and you can find Programming by Stealth number 139 of X in your podcatcher of choice. I'm not exactly sure how to tee up this next conversation, but if you've been listening to the show for a while, you've probably heard me talk frequently about Dr. Marianne Gary. She studies memory in, uh, she's a professor at the University of Waikato in New Zealand, and she's got this thing that she's doing. Uh, she's doing this thing with Tom Merritt and a couple of other scientists, and I don't understand what the thing is, and she wants us to watch it, and so this is a shameless plug for that, where she's going to explain to us what it is, this thing that she's doing. How's that for an intro, Marianne? Oh, that's great. Thank you, Allison. That is actually quite accurate. I'm here to just, you know, hold hostage your audience for 10 minutes so I can shamelessly plug this, this thing we're doing. So here's the thing that we're doing. Uh, there is a uh, the world's largest association of people like like me, psychological scientists, some 30,000 members across the globe, has put together uh, a number of, uh, uh, they're calling them global collaborations, uh, to, to talk about what, what could we have done better in the, in the pandemic. Mm. Uh, and, you know, there are like a metric ton of things we could have done better. <laughs> In the pandemic, even stop talking about it as though it's over. Uh, but but one of the things is uh, there are things that we can learn from our understanding of how uh, of human behavior, right? Uh, and I I'm working with some colleagues to do some research about how uh, what we should have known about memory, how we should have built memory into our understanding of how to fight this pandemic. And we're doing a discussion on the eighth of September. Do you have show notes? You have show notes, Allison. I right. will put things in show notes. Yes. You will. Yes. Yeah, so I will give you the information. You can put things in show notes uh, and watch this thing. I don't get it though. What does memory have to do with the pandemic? Well, see, see, <laughs> funny thing, funny thing. All right. You know, viruses in general move fast, right? And in general, when there's a virus in the community or there's some kind of outbreak, like even food poisoning, one of the things that public health officials do is they, they do what's called contact tracing, right? So they try and break this chain of uh, onward transmission if it's a contagious virus or pathogen by identifying people who are ill and then sequestering them in their homes, you know, like kind of quarantining, and then saying, basically, who else have you been near in the past X days where X days is like the, you know, the transmission period? And so what everybody knows is that this is exactly what we were doing at the height of the pandemic, contact tracing. Now, when you say we, you talk about certain countries were. Yeah, certain countries, right? And certain states and certain regions. It was the first thing to do was to try and gain control of the transmission of COVID, for instance, by breaking that chain of transmission. Because of the virus, you know, if you break the chain, then the virus goes nowhere, right? So what you do is you say to people who are ill, you know, public health officials would get a hold of them somehow, and say, who have you been around in the last, and at that point, or in the early stages of the pandemic, there was a, a, a thought to be a longer period of infection. So who were you around in the past three, four, five days? Tell us, and those are called contacts, right? 
And mm-hmm. so then they then do what's called tracing the contacts and they notify those people, ask them if they have symptoms. And if they do, then they ask them to stay at home and so on. Right. So this right. is pretty straightforward, right? The problem is, as we have talked about myriad, myriad times, now I'm going to crush your contact tracing dreams. <laughs> right. The effectiveness of contact tracing hinges in large part on how good your memory is. So if I say to you, Allison, where were you two days ago? Can you tell me? (laughs) No idea. Yeah. And who were you with? And so this assumes you know the people you were with. So I know you. I know you go to the gym. You go to Starbucks. I don't know if you know all the people at Starbucks, but you'll say, okay, you you went to Starbucks. Who were you at Starbucks with? And you'll say, "Uh, well, uh, you know, the barista. And then who else? I don't know. Maybe there's some people you've gotten to know at Starbucks. And then what did you do? Okay, well, you went to Whole Foods or Trader Joe's, had a chat with a guy by the kale. What guy by the kale? I don't know. Some guy by the kale. Had a blue shirt on. Yeah, had a blue shirt. Right. And then, so so some of that information is useless. Kale guy, blue shirt, right? Hmm. Not actionable. Some of it is just stuff you're not, you, you can't remember, you're leaving out. Some of it is you're mixing up because it wasn't that day. It was another day. Some of it is based on what you usually do. So everything I've talked to you about on your show before about witnesses, right? About how memory doesn't work like a video camera, about how when you try and remember something, you are not retrieving information like like a video on YouTube, you know, playing it over and over so it's the same every time, but instead stitching together thoughts and images and feelings about that seem like they are related to the question at hand. Well, now you see the problem. So we have the same problems that we have in, say, uh, the, the fragility of eyewitness memory as we do in contact tracing. And so So that's depressing as always. That's your crusher. Yeah, well dreams, this is this hat, is this right? is my reason for existing, right? Is to <laughs> come and crush. <laughs> so uh, do you feel here's my question to you so far. Do you feel worse than when we first started talking? No, I don't because where I live they didn't do it at all and I always thought that we missed out on something, but it sounds like it was a a, a fool's errand. Oh, you didn't do contact tracing. That's interesting. Mm-mm. I nope. didn't know that. So contact tracing can be really, really, really effective, right? Um, wait, when, wait, you just finished saying it couldn't be. But wait, it can be if you can get good information from people, but it's very difficult to get good information from people. Uh, because like any information that's accurate is better than no information. But you, you're right. You don't want to waste people's time and effort by not giving them information that's accurate and sending them on a wild goose chase or missing contacts and letting this pathogen run free, right? So you don't want to do that. So there's all kinds of all kinds of problems. Now enter what's called digital contact tracing. And digital contact tracing is the thing that you that we all have on our iPhones and I'm just going to say iPhones because I don't care about other phones, but uh, iPhones. Right. <laughs> it actually right. works on uh, Google phones do have it as well, right? Okay. Oh, does Google make a phone? <laughs> Apparently. Okay. So it works on your phone, right? Uh, And the reason that we have these things on our phone is because of the work of scientist slash digital epidemiologist named Marcel Salate. And he's in Switzerland. He's going to be on our panel. And his lab is responsible for developing what turned out to be the backbone of these apps and the whole, I guess what we could call it, the Apple slash Google operating system that ran in the background. So you probably had that on your phone. Right. And your phone, you know, sometimes you look, if you look in your iPhone, it says your iPhone continues to look for exposures on your behalf. And usually those things talk to an app 
that your uh, local public health officials or your national public health officials have arranged to talk to the system. And so it's a way that phones will generate unique codes and then try and match them with other phones that are generating their unique codes. It's a privacy protecting way of like just keeping track and matching, you know, and I think everybody knows how these work, right? Right. You test positive, you tap a thing, and then it sends your unique code, looks for other people in that system. So it's a kind of contact tracing. And it moves faster, of course, and in many ways takes the memory issues off the table. And so it's really a very interesting way of talking about the how technology can help ameliorate the problems that memory causes. Now, I first learned about digital contact tracing and the pros and cons of it, or the upside downside of it, by listening to Tom's show. Oh, okay. To Daily Tech News Show. Yeah, the Daily Tech News Show. Because he and the crew raised some questions that they had read about. It was a feature on on one of the shows. They said, well, you know, you need a certain number of people to be having this app. Because phones don't talk to each other if they don't have the ability to talk to each other. You need people to interact with the app. You need people to trust the app. And as you know, there's been this increasing levels of distrust uh how people are responding yeah you probably have you probably haven't noticed no no i know it hasn't been very visible but you know it has been there and also you know bluetooth suffers from just the technological problems like you can get false positives you can get false negatives based on just straightforward things like the orientations of your phones relative to other phones and so on you know i remember when i was listening to dtns i thought oh my God, this is a really interesting issue here for memory. And I asked some of coll- some colleagues to write a paper with me, which we did with some epidemiologists. And we published it end of 2020, beginning of 2021. And it turned out to be a really big paper. It's led to this, this thing. So first of all, I guess I, what I want to say is that in many ways, Tom is responsible and his crew are responsible for that paper and this event. We pulled together Marcel Salate, the digital epidemiologist, and Tom and me and another colleague who, what she does is she works on ways to interview people about important situations they've experienced in a way that prevents the kind of memory errors that I'm talking about or reduces them. And usually works with what we might call uh, euphemistically high value targets. (laughs) And government agencies with three-letter abbreviations. Okay. She's at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. Her name's Lorraine Hope. So the four of us are going to have a really interesting conversation about what's the promise of digital contact tracing? Where did it go wrong? What could we do better next time? And then we're going to take questions from the audience. I think it's going to be really cool. Wait, Q&A too? Is this yeah, Q&A. Like six hours long? How is this going to work? No, it's going to be about an hour. I think it's... Uh, 3 p.m. Eastern time on the 8th. September 8th. Okay. Yep. September 8th. And of course, this will be in the show notes. Now, because I'm relying on my memory to tell you that. And that (laughs) is always a stupid, stupid thing to do. I see it's in in seven days, September 8th at 12 p.m. my time is what I think it says. Yeah, right. So it's 3 p.m. Eastern time in the U.S., which is a terrible time of day for me early in the morning but that's okay because i'm all about helping people (laughs) give give crush your dreams then then hold out a helping hand (laughs) to lift you back up 
So the call to action here is people can simply go to the URL we're going to put in the show notes. It's a YouTube live sort of thing. Yes. And if, if you want to join the chat, which I really hope you, you do and ask some questions uh, or just say hello, then you need to sign up for a free YouTube account. Okay. If there's someone out there who doesn't have one. Yeah. I didn't know that you had to do that. I thought you just three people left. You know, Google all the things and it would automatically work, but apparently it doesn't. So I'm hoping that people will listen to this ahead of time, our, our conversation, and then go. Yes, right. I suspect everybody who listens to you has a YouTube account and can join the chat. One would suspect. All right. Well, this, this sounds really interesting. I like the idea of looking forward to the future of what we can do better next time because I'm pretty sure we can do better. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And I'm pretty sure there's going to be a next time. <laughs> right. The bar is not that high to do better. That's for sure. No. And some of the things that we'll talk about are how other countries handled this same kind of uh, digital contact tracing and the information that they gave people in their countries and how people responded to it. So different countries handled this very differently. And I think they're all really you know, very interesting. Now, I mean, I... and. And just to be fair, I, I guess we can't really fault people like Marcel Salate and, and other d digital epidemiologists from from stopping to think, oh, what's the best way to handle this from an understanding of human behavior? Because they were just trying to keep the world from blowing up. Mm -hmm. Right. But now maybe we could plan. Sit back and think about it. I mean, imagine if there were a pathogen that, I don't know came from monkeys or something oh stop it stop it <laughs> all right cool well i will put links to that in the show notes and uh and we'll uh we'll plug that around this sounds this sounds really fun i'm looking forward to it it is in my calendar i can tell you that thank you so much and if anyone wants to ask me questions ahead of time uh so we can address them hit me up dr Lambchop on twitter now, I talked a bit to Marianne after the recording, and she said she's really worried that people won't ask questions. So if you go watch this, and I, or yeah, watch and listen to this, um, do ask questions. If you have questions, please ask them, because she really wants to get people engaged in, uh, and help them make this panel be as good as it can be. Next up, we have a listener contribution by Graham Shepard, and uh, I think you're going to really like this. It sounds like a terrific app, and boy, does he have a great voice. I've been interested in photography for many years, and recently I moved away from my focus on nimble photography and decided to return to RAW. It's a long story that I may come back to another time, but today's focus is on getting the photos off my SD card and onto my computer with as little fuss as possible. In January, I stumbled across Photo Reviewer on the Mac App Store. Amazingly, it's a free piece of software that runs natively on Apple Silicon, and it does one job incredibly well. When I plug an SD card into my computer, the opening screen pops up and lets me get started. The screen is simple, letting me choose the review folder, a couple of simple options, and a window to let me import photos from a camera to the review folder. I've created a local folder on my computer so I don't have lots of photos trying to upload to iCloud and I've called it Photo Reviewer. Inside that folder, I have two more folders called Approved and Vetoed for reasons we'll get into later. Once I have the new photos in my Photo Reviewer folder, I can press start and the display switches to a neat configuration with thumbnails of photos in a sidebar on the left and the main window showing a big view of the selected photos. 
The thumbnails build up quickly and once done it is a very fast app for flicking between images to have a look at them. Now this is this review is about triage, so let's focus on that. Using the up and down cursor keys, I can move from image to image. For my first run though, I focus mainly on removing the bad images, like the ones badly out of focus and the ones of my feet when I accidentally press the shutter button whilst walking. When I see one of these, I press the minus key on the keyboard and that image immediately disappears from view. Now, it's important to realize that I haven't deleted the photo yet. Photo Reviewer works on the principle of putting the photos into one of three buckets, namely undecided, approved, and vetoed. By default, the thumbnails you can see are filtered to only show the undecided images. When I press the minus button, that image was put into the vetoed bucket and hence disappeared from view. If I change my mind, I can either undo the action or change the filter to show the vetoed images and make any changes I want to. This process is incredibly quick, and knowing that I'm not losing anything, I can go through photos quickly without worry. Once I've done that, I only have decent photos left, but of course I have 15 photos of the same bird from a burst shot. The next stage is to be more careful and approve or veto every single photo. This is not rating. This is triage, pure and simple. This binary choice may seem limiting, but I find that being forced to stick to it means I can get the photos triaged quickly, and that's important for me if I'm going to continue enjoying this hobby. Back to the app, if I like a photo, I can press the plus button to approve it, and as expected, it disappears from view as it is no longer undecided. And by the way, I've made the sensible move and I've remapped the approve button to equals, so I don't have to press shift. If you have two or more similar photos, simply select them all in the sidebar and they appear side by side in the main window for comparison. What's more, you can choose the magnifier tool by tapping forward slash and you get a little circle you can drag around to see finer detail and check for focus. By default, you can move the magnifiers around independently on e each image, but hold down shift, then move one magnifier, and all the magnifiers on all the open images move together. Perfect. As soon as you have put all the pictures into either the approved or vetoed buckets, the app prompts you to process the images. Remember that so far nothing has actually been done to the images. At this point though, you can choose an approved folder and a vetoed folder. There are also renaming options, but I haven't used that. When you're happy, you can process the images and they get moved to the designated folders and you're done with the triage. So the photo reviewer app can be closed. I then have a Hazel script empty the vetoed folder after one week and I have a keyboard maestro script to start the next stage of my processing on the approved photos. But that's a story for another time. Overall, I find Photo Reviewer to be a delightful, fast, free app for photo triage. I haven't used Lightroom for many years now. This is better than I remember that program to be, though I doubt anyone would want to move to this if they already use Lightroom. Thank you so much for this, Graham. This is a really nifty app. I can't believe the capabilities of this and for a free piece of software. This looks fantastic and will definitely solve a problem for me the next time I dust off my big girl camera.
If you've been following along with our home game for a long time, you know I'm a huge proponent of doing a nuke and pave to your Mac when you get a new computer. Or when I get a new computer, I should say. A nuke and pave means a full reinstall of macOS, followed by a reinstall of every single application from a fresh download, and then reconfiguring everything by hand. Only data is dragged back to the drive. Doing a nuke and pave is an awful lot of work, but my experiences in the last few weeks have cemented my belief that it's a good idea. Let me give a refresher on why this topic is yet again at the forefront of my mind. I bought a new 14-inch M1 MacBook Pro in November when they first came out. I did not use Migration Assistant nine months ago, or maybe it's 10 months ago now. I installed all of my apps from scratch, and I dragged my data over. Now, I've documented my process for nuking and paving most recently in my blog post from February of 2021. It's entitled Nuke and Pave 2021, All New Enhancements. Anyway, my new Mac ran clean and snappy and had no fiddliness after a good week of work getting everything the way I wanted it. I do a lot of customizations with my OS and my tools, so my iThoughts mind map, which documents the mission-critical, important, and less important apps and settings, is a lifesaver. Everything was dandy till a few months ago when I started noticing some problems. My battery wasn't lasting as long as it did when I first got the laptop. Long battery life is one of the great joys of the Apple Silicon chips, so it was noticeable when it started to diminish. The second problem was tougher. It was that Spotlight kept re-indexing my drive. At first, I thought that was the cause of the reduced battery life, since indexing does take a lot of power when the Mac would otherwise be idling. But re-indexing wasn't the only problem with Spotlight. While Spotlight was indexing my drive, it worked just fine as an app launcher. It could find all of my apps. But when it finishes indexing, it can't find any of the Apple apps. Oddly, it can always find third-party apps. It's just the Apple apps it can't find. In addition to not being able to find the Apple apps, it couldn't search with app within Apple apps either. I couldn't search inside Calendar or Mail, and I just happened to open system, uh, system information at one point to look at my list of installed apps, and there were no apps listed there at all. Eventually, my Mac would start indexing again and search would work, but the next time it finished, it would be broken again. Now, Apple has a handy-dandy support article on how to rebuild the Spotlight Index to solve problems like this. The trick is to open System Preferences Spotlight to the Privacy tab. This is where you can add any folders you don't want Spotlight to index. So to stop and then restart indexing of your entire drive, you drag your entire drive into that Privacy tab, quit System Preferences, open it up again, and then drag your drive back out. However, that didn't fix the problem. There's also a terminal command called mdutil that's supposed to fix the same kinds of issues. If you add the dash capital E flag to the command, it will cause each local store for the volumes indicated to be erased and then to be rebuilt if appropriate. If you throw a final backslash to the end of the command, that will tell mdutil to do the entire drive. But that didn't fix the problem either. I enlisted my good friend and Apple certified consultant Pat Dengler to help me, and she used her phone a friend option to contact her friend Scott, who suggested a command called LS Register. Now, if you look up LS Register in the terminal and you ask for the manual page for it, it there isn't one. But the great Howard Oakley from Eclectic Light wrote a long blog post explaining the command in detail over at his website, eclecticlight.co. Now, I'm popping the command into the show notes that I got from Scott, this crazy uh, um, command about Alice Register, but I'm not going to make any attempt to explain it because it's really complicated. But it doesn't really matter because that didn't work either. 
I tried Spotlight in a clean user account, that's the best way to find out what's going on, and the exact same problems occurred with Spotlight. Now, in a, in a turn of completely inexplicable events, my Screencast Online account, which is highly tailored, is not clean at all, never experienced these problems. Now, after more than a month of fighting with this Spotlight problem, I cried uncle, and I called AppleCare. My new friend Solomon worked on the problem with me for hours and hours over the course of a few weeks, and while we didn't solve the Spotlight problem, he did get approval to replace the battery on my nearly new MacBook Pro. Normally, you can't get a new uh, battery under warranty until the full charge capacity goes below 90%, but mine had dropped to 94% in such a short amount of time that he fought for me, and he won. As often happens when you send a computer into AppleCare, my drive was wiped. When I got it back for the first time ever, I decided to recover all of my data, all of my applications, and all of my settings using Migration Assistant. I only had one day to put it together, so I had to. I will never do this again. To start with, my Spotlight problems came right back with Migration Assistant, and now I've spent even more time with my friend Solomon. Engineering at Apple has come back with seemingly intelligent things for me to do, such as uninstalling seven applications that use the MD Importer plugin for Spotlight. Four of these apps were mission-critical apps. Didn't matter. Didn't fix the problem. Then they sent me, uh, or they had me send them, I should say, several Spotlight log files. It turns out in Activity Monitor, if you look at the little three-dot menu, you can pull a log file from Spotlight. After that, they sent me a giant list of files buried inside my user library that they suggested I temporarily delete. Now, I might have been able to delete them, but putting them back would have been the hard part. And I might have gotten all this to work if it weren't, or I might have gone to all this work, I should say, if it weren't for all of the other problems that I'm having since using Migration Assistant. So even if you assume I fixed the Spotlight problem, it is still a hot mess. Now, doing a new Compave is a ton of work, like I said. But you know what? It's predictable work. You know, I have to install this. I have to configure that. I have to install this. I have to configure that. There's, I've got a process set down, and if I follow it, I end up with a working machine. My experience with Migration Assistant is that it's a lot of work too, but you just don't know when you're suddenly going to be hit with that work, and you're going to be right in the middle of something, but it doesn't matter because you can't do what you need to do because you run into another one of these problems. The other thing is, a lot of these I don't know how to fix them. I literally can't figure out how to fix these problems. Let me just give you an assortment of some of the issues that have popped up. After the drive was wiped, Backblaze lost the connectivity to my backup. This meant that I had to adopt my previous backup. Either through a software failure, or more likely due to user error, I ended up adopting Steve's backup, so I had to delete both of them and start over for both of us. I lost some vital information when I did this that would have been handy later. Now, that one's maybe not entirely Migration Assistant's fault. I would have probably had to do this Backblaze adoption, but it would have been in my list of things to do. I wouldn't have just missed the fact that it wasn't running. Uh, let's see. Every user account had to have Touch ID enabled again. Uh, several of my startup items in my user accounts got lost. So I tried to use an app like CleanShot X and nothing would happen. I had to stop what I was doing and go fix it. Even Bartender didn't start at login. Again, I would have had to make, make all these things start at login, doing it from scratch, but I would have known. I wouldn't be going, okay, I got to take a screenshot. Wait, where's Screenshot X or CleanShot X? It's not running. Why isn't it running? Got to go diagnose it. Got to go find it. Where is it? Go add it. It's just, it's the unpredictability that's driving me crazy. Now, one, here's one of my favorites. One password's Safari extension broke in a really annoying way. 
If I command tabbed over to Safari, it would briefly bring Safari to the foreground. So you could see up in the menu bar, it said Safari, but then almost just a split second later, it would flip to say one password instead. And I would only notice that if I looked at the menu bar. So I'd start typing, trying to type into Safari and nothing would be happening. I couldn't type in the URL bar because it's not in the foreground. I am somehow in this mutant invisible one password. The way to fix that is you have to uninstall one password completely. Uninstalling one password means you have to quit one password first. Turns out it's not the regular quit, quit though. You have to do a double secret quit and there's a secret keystroke you must invoke in order to fully quit the app. Well, I keep the double key secrets uh, keystroke in my app, keep it. And so I had to go find that. I had to open it up and do it. So only then could I tootle off to the Mac App Store to download 1Password. Now wait, the Mac App Store gave me 1Password 7, not 8. Urgh, so that meant I had to do the double secret keystroke to quit 1Password again. I had to uninstall it again, find the link to the download at 1Password.com and reinstall it. And then try to remember, what was it I was trying to do in Safari in the first place? Again, I would have had to download and install 1Password from scratch, but I would have known where to do it, how to do it. It was in my documentation. It would have been predictable. I would have, it would have been the very first thing I did when I, when I uh, you know, set up my new machine. Now, let's see. This one's a little weird. I use a WordPress plugin called Updraft Plus. So that's on my website, and it downloads a backup of my website to Dropbox once a week. It also monitors Dropbox, and it deletes older backups automatically. But after Migration Assistant, every single time Updraft Plus wants to delete a file, I get a pop-up asking me if it's okay to delete for everyone. I don't know who everyone is. Maybe that's me and the app have both have privileges, but I get over a half a dozen of these notifications one after another, once a week, and I don't know how to make them stop. Here's a really fun one. Upon boot up, System Preferences opens to Extensions, Finder Extensions, every single time I boot up. Sometimes it happens when I wake from sleep. So what the heck is causing that? Is there some P-list somewhere? I don't know. Here's another P-list one. On a Mac, you have tons of hidden files. They're affectionately referred to as dot files because their names start with a period. You can see them at any time you like in the finder if you hold down command, shift, period, or dot. And uh, to make them disappear again, you hit the same keystroke. I know this keystroke. I'm good at that. While it's cool, I don't want to see my hidden files, but after Migration Assistant on upon boot up, Finder always showed me hidden files. I could disable their visibility, reboot, and they'd be visible again the next time. I lived with this for weeks before, before I finally took time out of my schedule to go hunting for a way to make this stop. I found an Apple discussion article in which Leroy Douglas suggested that the Finder plist uh, might be corrupted. I deleted that plist file and it fixed the problem. But why did Migration Assistant corrupt this plist? Or where did it get corrupted? How did it get corrupted? Did it get corrupted in my, in my backup? I don't know. It was fine when I created the backup, though. It was working before my drive got wiped. So this one, I put this all on Migration Assistant. Now, I have a separate volume on my Mac for my screencast online work. I had previously set the permissions so that my main Allison user account could read and write to it along with my screencast online user account. I did that by creating a group in System Preferences, Users and Groups, that has both my Allison and my Screencast Online user accounts in it. I then gave the volume permissions recursively to everything inside that, uh, that the folder that I needed. The existence of this group was not maintained by Migration Assistant, requiring me to recreate it. Again, my workflow was entirely interrupted by this unpredictable behavior. 
I would have had to have done that on my, uh, you know, new clean install, but I would have known to do it. Now, we all remember how hard I worked to be able to connect to my Synology network attached storage automatically for my Hazel scripts to work, right? You don't want me to go through that again. That was a long one. After Migration Assistant transferred all of, over all my files and settings, I can no longer use Go Connect to Server to connect to my Synology over SMB. That means my Keyboard Maestro macro won't work because it uses that command. I verified that the identical command on my Mac Mini works just fine, and it works for Steve on his Mac Studio, so there's nothing wrong with the Synology or the network. I didn't have any idea how to make SMB connections work again. Here's an interesting weirdness. This week, or today I should say, I tried it and it worked. I have no idea why it wasn't working for the last three weeks, but it worked this week, today. I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. Why did it stop working now it started working again? It's unpredictable. On a related note, Steve and I often connect each other's Macs over our local network to drop files to each other. The other day, Steve opened a Finder window, scrolled in the left sidebar to Locations, and saw Al Macs in the sidebar. That's great. When he selected it, he could see the top level, so he selected the Allison user account, which revealed the expected folders like applications, desktop, and documents. I had already created a folder on my desktop into which he was going to drop the files. He selected desktop, and it said, you have zero items in that, on that desktop folder. That is a lie. I currently have 12 files and folders on my desktop. When he selected my applications folder, it revealed to him all of my apps but my documents folder was as empty as my desktop when he tried to view the contents. Every other folder we checked revealed the actual contents. Now you may be thinking of the reason why. The only thing that desktop and documents have in common is that I'm syncing those to iCloud. Now Pat Dingler said, well, wait a minute, they don't actually, the files aren't actually there, they're in iCloud, so they would never show, but they have always showed before. So I, have, I just have to add this to the long list of, I have no idea how to fix this, caused by Migration Assistant. Our workaround has been I've used the same exact process to connect into Steve's Mac, and I can see his Mac, and I can see his desktop. He puts the files there, and then I drag them over to my desktop. So it's working one way. I don't know why it's not working the other way. Now here's the doozy. I have saved my favorite problem for the last. While I'm proud of myself for cracking the code to fix this problem, it was the final straw that convinced me that I really do truly need to do a nuke and pave. I simply cannot have my workflow constantly interrupted by these crazy side effects of using Migration Assistant. Here's the doozy. I use the app Hindenburg to record the podcast. Hindenburg allows you to pull in audio clips as favorites and show them in a list inside the app. The jingles you hear throughout the show are all favorites. Last week, when I was going to record my Tiny Mac Tip segment, I tried to drag in the Tiny Tips jingle, but I got an error. I tested a couple of the other favorites, like the intro and outro music, and they all worked just fine. It was only the Tiny Tips jingle that wouldn't work. I was disconcerted by this, but I knew I also have a copy of the jingle over in Keep It. But get this, in Keep It, the file showed that it was zero seconds long, and it could not play the file. I needed to keep going with the show, so I just didn't use a jingle at all last week, deciding to diagnose the problem later. Again, all of these interruptions. When I had time to investigate, I took a closer look at what was happening, and I realized Hindenburg was actually giving me a permissions error. So Hindenburg keeps favorites in uh, Tilda Library Application Support Hindenburg Favorite. I first looked at the Tiny Tips jingle in that folder via the Finder, and I did a Git info on it to view the permissions. But instead of showing me the name of the owner of the file, it had a spinning cogwheel and the word fetching next to it. 
in all my many, 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 many years using a Mac. I have never seen this before. It's time to get serious and use the terminal to look under the hood at permissions. I navigated to the favorites directory for Hindenburg, and I discovered that every single jingle had Allison as the owner, except the Tiny Tips jingle. That one was owned by user ID 504. Now, you may not realize this, but every user account has a unique ID. You can see them in, uh, in a pretty easy way. If you unlock users and groups in system preferences, you can right-click on any username and you'll see an option for that says advanced options dot dot dot. From there, you can see the user ID for that user. I inspected every single one of the accounts on my Mac and none of them had a user ID of 504. This explains why GetInfo was never able to figure out who owned that file because it was a non-existent account. Now I fixed the problem by changing the owner to Allison with a command that's of course in the show notes, sudo chown Allison, followed by the name of the file. But the real question is, why did Migration Assistant munge that one file by assigning permissions to a user ID that did not exist? I'm betting that 504 used to exist and it changed all the other ones over to Allison, but it didn't change this one, but maybe my user ID was 504 before, but it isn't now. But why that one? Was that like a neutrino came through and did that? I don't know. The bottom line is that I was delighted that Migration Assistant moved my massive 985 gigabyte photos library over to the nuked Mac and did not require me to wait for it to check every single image and video to see if it was in iCloud. But that was the only thing I enjoyed about Migration Assistant. I feel like my Mac is a minefield of disasters waiting for me at every turn. I complained about Migration Assistant in the Podfeet Slack, podfeet.com Slack, and Jim responded. He wrote this very helpful little message. Used Migration Assistant back in January 2021 when I got my 27-inch 2020 iMac. Worked well. No issues. Had a lot of third-party software as well as Apple software. Oh, I did have to tell my, uh, Microsoft about my home and student one ma uh, machine standalone office, deleting the old machine, but that wasn't Apple's problem. Well, I'm really happy for you, Jim. Truly, I'm not jealous or bitter at all about that. Well, I've got some open time next week, so stay tuned for episode 2,493 of the long-running series, Allison Does a Nuke and Pave. There's a podcast I really enjoy, but it starts with a two-minute ad spot. And then there's another ad spot in the middle of the show. That might not be too bad, but the show is only 14 minutes long, so the ads are nearly 30% of the show. I gotta say, this has become more and more the norm with a lot of podcasts. But you know what? That's not true with any of the PodFeed podcasts, because we don't run ads. We depend on the listeners to support the work, either through Patreon or PayPal. If you like having an ad-free content podcast not behind a paywall, please consider going to podfeed.com slash Patreon or podfeed.com slash PayPal to support the show. If you aren't already subscribed to Bodie Grimm's Kilowatt podcast, I would like you to stop right now and go subscribe. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'll wait here. Okay, okay, good. Now that everybody's subscribed, I want to welcome Bodhi to for a new segment that he suggested for the NoCellacast. Welcome to the show, Bodhi. Hi, Allison. Thanks for having me on. One of the things I love about Bodhi's show is uh, it's not all Tesla all the time. There is a lot of Tesla news because there's always a lot of Tesla news, but he's really good at looking at all the different kinds of cars, and, and I've learned so much about what is actually available to us in uh, in electric vehicles, and uh, he suggested a this new segment, which I think everybody might very likely be interested in. Why don't you describe what your vision is? Okay, so one of the things that irritates me about electric vehicles is that they are very, very expensive, and 
for the average person who wants to buy an EV, you shouldn't be paying seven or eight hundred dollars a month in a car payment. I, I think that's ridiculous. So it is like my goal in in my podcast to highlight electric vehicles that are actually affordable for people. Now, in a lot of cases, this is highlighting vehicles that ha- actually haven't that aren't that aren't actually being exist. produced right at the moment. <laughs> at the moment. But we do have, uh, I, I picked three electric vehicles that I think are really cool. And I think the audience will think is cool as well. And the first one is being produced right now. And that's the Chevy Bolt. So um, I'm sure most people are familiar with the Chevy Bolt. It's come, it's been out for, I think, six years now. I don't know a lot about it. I just know two people who have them and say it's the best car they've ever owned. Yeah, it, it, it's a fantastic car. Um, I will say... Like when I look at the Chevy Bolt, this is what I think. I think of somebody um, designed this car in the 80s based on what they thought that cars would look like in the early 2000s, not (laughs) not the teens of the 2000s, just like the early 2000s. It's not that sexy of a car, but it is a very good car. And I try and let me let me add to your description of of the uh, the way it looks is I remember Rob Dunwood saying on the SMR podcast that he wasn't going to buy an electric vehicle until someone came out that didn't look like a mushroom. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah, there was a there for a while there, there was a design aesthetic that BMW had um, that Faraday Motors had uh, Faraday Future, where it was just like this very not boxy, but just kind of swoopy, but kind of boxy design. Roundy, with a, rounded rectangles. Yeah, <laughs> just rectangle. roundy, but it still ends up being very boxy. Mm-hmm. So I agree with that 100%. But, but if you're looking... Car. Yeah, if you're looking for a car that could actually do the job of getting you from place to place in a environmentally friendly way, I think the Chevy Bolt is fantastic. And that is a full EV. It is a full EV. And I do want to say, because I tried to be fair. Now, I know that there's other markets besides North America and Europe, but today we're going to, I have compare, I have cars for North America and I have cars for Europe. If we do this again, I will try and pick some vehicles for like uh, the Asian markets and things like that. Okay. But the Opel Ampira, which is the equivalent, it's the Ampira E, it's the equivalent of the Chevy Bolt built on much of the same technology. And that's for Europe. And that car starts at 42,900 euros. Today, I tried to find vehicles that were going to start under 30,000 US dollars. Okay. So, uh, 42 euro for 42,000 euro is, uh, $42,000, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's, I think it's closer to 45. No, no, it's, it's, it's virtually identical. 42, is it? uh, 42 euros is $42 and 66 cents. Okay. There As you go. of this instant in time, so is uh, how much is the sh- uh, the Chevy Bolt? The Chevy Bolt is right now. They're saying you can get it for twenty six thousand dollars. I've not seen it cheaper than twenty eight thousand dollars. And the I looked last night and I found it in New Jersey at twenty eight thousand dollars, just a little bit above. So the Opel Impera is the same car, but it costs like fifty percent more money. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> There was a little battery problem with the Chevy Bolt where they were catching on fire. Not a lot of them caught on fire, but enough to where I think that Chevy, they had to halt production for a while. They had to go through some retooling. They had to work with LG, which is their supplier on the batteries and the battery control unit and all that stuff. And and so I think the price is much uh, to kind of... Depressed. I think... Yeah, I think it's more now of a compliance car for their other dirtier vehicles because they're 
they're probably selling this at a loss. So your yeah. loss or their loss is your gain. Yeah. So my mother bought a Ford Pinto right after they found oh. out that Ford Pintos would explode if you got in a rear end collision after they fixed the problems. And I remember thinking, mom, what are you nuts? And she goes, no, I figured that's probably the safest car on the market. <laughs> like they would always fly airlines that had just had a crash if they could, you know, they, they would target that because that's the one everybody's on their toes on that one, you know? Um, so not that you should definitely follow my mother's advice, but if you can get a, an electric vehicle for $28,000 that you can actually afford, take advantage of the fact that they did have a problem that they appear to have now fixed. Yeah. It, it, they, they stopped production for a good long time. I honestly, cause they have GM has this Ultium battery platform or Ultium platform, skateboard platform for their new EVs, like the Chevy Blazer EV, the Silverado EV, and the Hummer EV, and the Cadillac Lyric. So that's all built on their Ultium, which is their new technology. I honestly thought that Chevy was going to be like, okay, we're going to halt here, because they did. They stopped production. And then we're going to move over to the Ultium platform. But they they didn't. They're still on the, the, the same platform they built with LG originally. They just made um, safety there. I can't, I, the, around the same time, the Hyundai Ionic five or no, excuse me, the Hyundai Kona and was having some of these fire issues as well. They were separate. They were different. I can't remember which one was, which, what, what the cause was, but it really, in the grand scheme of things, it, it was probably a fairly easy fix. They just needed to retool some things. It wasn't like the the batteries were just spontaneously combusting. There was some there were some problems um, internally with how things were being managed, and that's what caused the fires. It sounds like the, that that's all fixed. So, I haven't heard of a recent fire okay. on a Chevy Bolt. So the Chevy Bolt is uh, what the the question everybody wants to know first is uh, is range, and second is price. But so, uh, what kind of range do you get with the the Bolt? So we're looking at 259 miles of range. Oh, that's really respectable. It's respectable, but when you know, and most people who own EVs know, that you can't necessarily charge to 100% on a regular basis. And it's also so a lie. Like, you have to have a tailwind. It has to be warm out. Right. Uh, don't turn on the air conditioning. Um, <laughs> correct. That That's all correct. Um, it's... It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. It's, okay. it's like it, for what you, most you people really used to it. Yeah, like the the the, the guys at Orange Charger. Um, I interviewed them on my show a couple episodes ago, and they're basically putting in charging solutions for um, multifamily dwellings. And Nicholas, the founder, was like, "You know what? Most people drive forty miles a day, right, to work and back or whatever. You can easily charge your car up." overnight with with to back to whatever 100% is for you you know if you're rocking at 80% or 90% you can easily charge your car back to that level without much of an issue right we shouldn't spoil that episode cuz Bodie gave it to me to do as a crossover episode and I am going to play it I've just been trying to figure out where to slip it in that is a fascinating fantastic interview I loved it I was I was riveted to it so I want to listen to it again yes and and <laughs> I I was I was foreshadowing I was I was teasing Mm -hmm. um but yeah the 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 bolt is a, is a very good car with any electric vehicle right now you there's going to be some give and take i don't think it's that big of a deal to be honest unless you're spending like you know like one hundred and sixty thousand dollars on a lucid air that goes 400 miles the range you're you're gonna have 
to to think about how you how you're going to charge if you're going on a long road trip. Allison's mentioned several times if you're just going to be driving around town and charging at home, you don't even have to think about it. All you have to do is plug your car in. That's all you got to do. Right. So. Right. Um, okay, so that's the Chevy Bolt. What's the uh, what's the next one on your list? Well, I have a couple of things real quick about the oh, Bolt because there's some cool stuff going on right now. First of all, it's a very comfortable car. I'm five eleven and I've I crawled in the back seat of one of these and it, I felt fine. Like the car itself is not doesn't have a lot of frills to it, but it does have Apple CarPlay. It has Android Auto. It has Amazon's A Lady built in. There's a nice big eight inch instrument cluster behind the steering wheel, mm-hmm. and like a ten point two inch touchscreen infotainment system. Nice. And if you're somebody who likes buttons and knobs, which I know uh, your listener, Bruce W knows, he, he likes knobs. It has buttons and knobs. So I think there should be um, more knobs than there are in Tesla. But when I get into a, a car that's only knobs, it looks like, like somebody just barfed knobs all over the car to me because right. I'm so used to the clean interface on the Tesla. So some I, do you all things in moderation, as my mother would always say. <laughs> And I agree 100%. So you get an eight-year, 100,000-mile warranty with this car. Hmm. You also get, which I think this is really cool, you also get a, um, a a charging outlet installed in your garage. So Chevy will pay for a level two charging outlet for anyone who purchases or leases a 2022 Chevy Bolt wow. EUV, which is the, it's a little bit bigger version of the Bolt, or the EV. So if your home doesn't necessarily qualify, they'll give you $1,000 towards the installation and a $250 uh, credit towards permits. But you have to use this uh, company that kind of arranges all this stuff called Q-Merit. But that's, a, that's about the, the end think, of it. That's kind of a neat, uh, uh, a neat uh, idea to an incentive. Hey, I'm looking yeah. at a picture of it. It's not that ugly. It looks like a sort of like a the nineteen seventy six Honda Civic I had, except extended a little right. more. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like it was designed in the eighties for something that they thought would look like in the the two thousands. It's not that ugly. It's just a little bit mushroomy. Not that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, the next car. Do you have any questions on that before we jump? No, in? No, no. That's yes. uh, that is really interesting. A good price. Uh, definitely. That, that's a very reasonable range. Uh, zero yeah, to 60 so. in 6.5 seconds. I'm going to send you. That's not uh, as fast as I would like, but, uh, you know, that's no. not why you're not buying this car to, to be the first off the line. It's not a hot rod. Yeah, for sure. Okay. I'm going to send you a picture of the Aptera. And if you could just be so kind as to explain it to the audience, I sent it through. Telegram. Oh, there. <laughs> Okay, now Bodie's got, he's already gone off the rails. The Aptera looks like a flying uh, flying car. Yeah, without wings. With, well, yeah. What are what are those big bulbous things? Are those wheel covers? Those are wheel covers. So okay. it, it is definitely George Jetson's car. Yeah, that particular model I sent you is a little bit older. I can send you the website. Actually, this is. Okay. This is the Aptera, which is, this is the reason, this car right here is the reason why I got into electric vehicles. Because way back when, I can't remember if it was like 2011 or 2013, it was something like that. Um, I saw this car and I was like, this is the car that I want. It's a two-seater, three-wheeled vehicle. It's classified as a motorcycle. But it is by far the coolest car that... 
I think is is going to be produced. I am so high on this vehicle. Now it says uh, it says driven by the sun. Is it got solar panels in the roof or something? It does. So there's a couple of different models. The model that we're highlighting today has um, solar panels in the roof, and that will give you 20 miles of range a day. Now, if it's cloudy outside, you're not going to get quite 20 miles of range, but that will give you just 20 miles range just sitting per day. So that's free energy. Free energy. And this vehicle is very light. It has a drag coefficient of 0.13. And just to give you kind of like a, a comparison, the Lucid Air, which has a very good drag co coefficient, and the Ionic 6, also very good drag coefficient, because happens to be the same, is 0.21. Oh, wow. The Formula E car that Lucid has, Lucid Motor has, is 0 0.20. And the Aptera is a 0.13 drag coefficient. Wow. It's, so it's a, go ahead. It, it just, I, I can't wait till people see a picture of this. It's A-P-T-E-R-A. -E I'm The three wheel thing is funky. So it's two wheels in front and one in the back. It just looks like Correct. you lean on the back left corner and tip it over. College, yeah, don't put this out on your college students on, on spring break. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, it means like it's Greek, Aptera, and it means like flightless bird or flightless spiders or flightless oh. insect. Yeah, so, flightless bird is good because it looks like a bird, that, but it doesn't fly. Right. It's a very cool looking car. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The trunk just popped open and it's a tent. It can be a tent. Well, you can. that's an accessory you have to buy. Okay. But yes, it can be. you can use it as a tent. So this is, like I said, it's a two-seater vehicle. The Electra Mechanica has a two-seater, three-wheeled vehicle that's classified also as a motorcycle. But it, one person sits in the back and another person sits in the front. So oh. the way the Aptera works is you actually get to sit side by side, making date night a whole lot less awkward um, <laughs> if you choose to drive this car. Um, the car is very light, so you don't need a super big battery. It goes zero to 16 in 5.5 seconds. The, one of the cool things about this car is it has um, the motors are in the wheel hub. So that frees up space in the, in the vehicle. Oh. And there's some, you know, some people say there might be some downside to that because it takes, you know, as you're going through, like if you're going over a lot of speed bumps or bumpy roads and stuff that might cause damage to the motor. Hmm. But this is a light enough car where I don't think that's going to be a big, as big of an issue. And Sandy Monroe, who, if you don't know, does a, has a great YouTube channel. He tears vehicles down and he's been in the auto industry for years and years and years. He doesn't think this is that big of a deal either. So I trust him. Okay. Okay. And you, it has dual motors in the, in the front two wheels and you get an option. If you want, you can put one in the, the back wheel. So you could give have you a little three bit more motors. Pep. Okay. Yep. And the, so there's so many cool things. One of the coolest things that I think will resonate with this audience is that they support right to repair, and it's actually a part of their service plan. So if you want to service your own vehicle, they will send you the parts and you can repair it. And the vehicle is built very simply because they wanted people to be able to repair their own parts. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a flip side of this, too, is that it's very expensive to put service centers all over the country. So it's a whole lot easier to build a car that people can repair on their own with help from Aptera support if they need it. It's a whole lot easier to do that than it is to build, you know, service centers in 50 different states. Okay. So, you know. So uh, the, the upside is you can repair it yourself. The downside is you might have to repair it yourself. Right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. this one, it the, says, starts at 25.9? 
Yep, that's correct. Uh, up to 50700 You can now reserve that, it now for $100. Yes. And that actually, I thought about um, trying to get things uh, like this over my wife is, is difficult. But I thought about buying it and just throwing it on Turo and renting it out for like a... $80 a day or whatever and letting people drive this thing around. Cause I think it's a lot of fun to drive and it raises awareness. And so for you know, people like who don't know what Turo around. is, it's like uh, Airbnb, but for, uh, for cars. Correct. Sorry. Yes. It's kind of a cool way to do it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so you really think is, this is real? This, this just looks like oh, something yeah. you'd see at, at the uh, Detroit auto show and you'd never actually see exist there. I believe they start production at the end of this year. So okay. they are to that point. Now, Back in like 2000, the early 2010, 11, 12 area, when I first saw this car, they they just could not get it done. And the, okay. I thought the company went away. And then they came back maybe two or three years ago and they're like, okay, the both founders exited a, a battery company, I think, or maybe they still run it. I can't remember. But anyway, they came into some more money and some more f- funding and stuff. And now they are... Um, hell bent on, on getting it out. And I support this 100% because I think it's a cool car. Now the $50,000 model that you're talking about, mm-hmm. that model is covered in solar panels and it comes with a really big battery. I think it's a 500 mile range. And they say with the solar panels and the battery, you could easily get a thousand miles before you needed to charge again, because wow. the solar panels will charge it while you're, you know, at whole foods or you're at work or whatever. Or driving. Or driving. Yeah. Wow. So still at $50,000, that's um, 30% less than a Model S or a Model 3 from yeah. Tesla. So even at the top of the line, that's still not that bad. Um, yeah. Zero to 60, can, anywhere from 3.5 to 5.5 seconds, depending on how it's configured. Right. The 3.5 is if you have that third motor okay. in the back. That gives you the 3.5. I think it could fly if it's at zero to 60, 3.5. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have this they is, tested it, this in wind? Um, yes, they've, they've done quite a bit. Sandy Monroe is actually consulting with them on the the product. Okay. So they are a client of his. So I, like, I was a little heartbroken the first time they decided they weren't going to continue on with this product. And then I was excited, but cautious when they said, we're bringing it back. And then when Sandy Monroe said, I'm in on helping them out with this, I was like, okay, well now they're very serious. So yeah, production should start soon. They just bought a warehouse, I think not far from you. So it sounds like um, the lesson so far in your pitch is uh, lease a Chevy Bolt for a couple of years waiting for this to become a reality and then get the cool one. Right. Lease a Chevy Bolt and then let Chevy install your 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 outlet for your level two charger. And then and then, then you get something cooler. Yeah. So not not exactly a practical family car uh, unless you're a single parent of one. Uh, actually, Correct. I wonder how that works with since kids have to be in the back seat. It is a motorcycle, so I don't know exactly how that works. My kids, in Arizona anyway, like when I would rent a a truck to do stuff around our house, I would just throw my kids in the front because there was no back to put them in. I just made sure they were in their car seats Okay. um, when they were younger. And now they're almost old enough to be sitting in the front anyway, so it's not as big of a deal. I think you have to be 26 to sit in the front seat these days, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, by the way, what I always love in, in when people are annoyed at things like this is they say, well, you know what, when I was growing up, blah, 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 blah. It's like, yeah, but you're the one sitting here able to tell that story. Little Billy that flew out the window, he's right. not here to say when I was a kid. Yes. And I don't want to, uh, 
don't want to bring the mood down, but I've seen what happens when people don't wear seatbelts and they get into a serious accident. And oftentimes that that is very traumatic uh, for everybody involved. And uh, it's not a good thing. So everybody yep. should wear their seatbelt and, and uh, uh, abide by, embrace they, the technology. When they have those safety rules, I, I'm just like, there's a reason they said this. There's a reason they said to go put the car seat facing backwards until they're such and such old. There's a reason. Right. They did the math. They know what happens. Just just do what they say. Yeah. Uh, like, the one time you don't want to second guess yourself is after, you know, something terrible has happened. Yeah. All right. So, so anything more on the uh, Aptera vehicle from the future? No. I would say if you're interested, definitely go out and pre-order it. Because it's a it's a fun car. You only have to put a hundred bucks down. Did you put down a hundred bucks? No. This, again, uh, you've met my wife. <laughs> I love her very much, but she's very practical. And she's and, like, and why do we need three cars? And you're still waiting for your uh, the the money you put down on the uh, Tesla Cybertruck. Cyber, yes, on that one, she's finally relented. <laughs> now that she's it'll fine. probably never happen, she's relented. Yeah. No. Yeah. She's probably coming. You got to give her time. When my wife was in school, I gave her a Palm Pilot because it would be useful for what she was doing in school. And she left it in the box for three months and would occasionally pick it up and like move it around. But then she'd put it back in the box. And then eventually she started using it and she was like, this is great. And then she got her friend one who did the same thing. Interesting. Because her friend has the same thing. And But here's the thing, Allison, if I could just digress a little bit. We had a, a friend who was 89 years old who bought a computer, first computer ever. She would turn it on in the morning. She would email her sister. She would turn it off at night. That's what she did. Uh, she was more advanced at 89 than my wife was at 22 <laughs> in the terms of technology. People, people are definitely different there. I remember uh, Steve's dad, we were trying to convince him he needed a new computer. or No, that he needed broadband internet instead of dial-up. And he said, I don't know, I don't know what your problem is. I get up in the morning, I turn on my computer, I go downstairs, I have a cup of coffee, I eat some breakfast, I uh and I and I read the newspaper and I come back and it's all ready to go. Yeah. That's <laughs> that's what Mary would do. That's a, almost the same exact thing. Now you yeah. couldn't now you couldn't take his broadband out of his his uh, hand. So all right. Same with enough complaining about right. our relatives here. Uh <laughs> what's our what's our third car for this segment? The third one, they, I, I tried to make it cooler and cooler every time. And this one I just recently learned about. It's called uh, the Sono Motors Scion. Now, don't get it confused because there's a Scion brand that yeah. Toyota owns here in the United States. So I think that if they're planning on coming to the U.S., that's probably a mistake and they'll need to change their name. But at least for here in North America. It's S-I-O-N instead of S-C-I-O-N. But Correct. And then at Sono Motors, S-N-O Motors.com, if you want to take a no, look at the vehicle. No, it's S-O-N-O. What did I say? S-N-O. Oh, it's, yeah. It's not Snow Motors. It's Sono it's Motors, S-I-O-N. Okay. Correct. Glad we've helped. There will be show notes. This is why I edit, Allison, this reason right here. Okay. <laughs> I don't. Okay, so what's cool <laughs> about this car? This car, are, are you looking at it now? I am. Okay, well, how would you describe this car? Well, it's a front-on view, so right now it looks like a Chevy Bolt. Let me. Uh, it does. See if I can get any other views. Nope, still if. looks. Like, no, it looks like a cross between a Chevy Bolt uh, had a baby with a uh, um, a Prius. Yeah, and it's also kind of got some minivan vibes. Yeah. So this is the Scion. 
this company is really cool. I, I, I can't get a date as to when they actually started this. Some in 2012 or in 2015, two 18-year-olds or 18, 19-year-olds, right around that age, rage, they went into like a little shed. They shoved some batteries into a car. And then I think it was a Renault. And then they decided this is going to be an electric vehicle. And they just wanted to see if they could do it. And it took them three years. And this vehicle is built in Munich. It's for the European market. Um, it's about the size of a Volkswagen Golf. It's a little bit bigger than that. It's a very simple car. This car is all about um, affordability. There's nothing super flashy about this vehicle. It's very boxy. And the reason why it's boxy is because it's covered in solar panels. Oh. And there's like a polymer over these solar panels. So they're not going to just like fall off and break. Are they even the on, car, the sun, on the doors? Yeah, they're everywhere. Oh. What 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 color would you would you say that? Uh, it's like a blackish mottled gray. Like you can see the these panels on panels. So it's like darker right. gray where these rectangles are and then lighter gray. So it's that color for a reason. It's because they want to absorb as much light. So they found that if they used other colors, including a glossy black, um, it didn't. The solar panels wouldn't absorb as much light, so, so they this use this, is, this matte is the, black. The matte black that's around the solar panels causes the solar panels to absorb more. Yeah, oh, it doesn't reflect the light away; it brings in the light, according to the the fine folks at Sono Motors. Hmm. But they did a lot of testing, and they actually gave their customers. I, I don't know how much of a different was difference it was between glossy black and matte black, but they gave their customers the option, which one do you think you would like? And overwhelmingly, the, the feedback was matte. So that's what they went with. Um, with the solar panels, you can charge 70 miles of range, just regular overcast. If you're mm -hmm. living somewhere sunny like Portugal, you're 140 miles of range a week in the sun, not a day, but a week in the sun. Okay. And so the 70 it, miles cloudy was in, in a week? Yes, in a week, yes. So it, it charges at 75 kilowatts. So that means the battery can accept that much energy. It's not like the fastest. It's not, a lot of my, it's not a Model 3, but the Chevy Bolt only charges around 50 kilowatts. So oh. it actually charges faster than the Chevy Bolt. It also has Android Auto and Apple CarPlay. Uh, you get a 190-mile range just if, the, if there was no charging from the solar panels. Oh, okay. So that, once you've once you've charged it, say from a level two charger or something, you're saying you've got you've got the 190 miles of range, uh, 305 kilometers. You're saying the the solar would be on top of that. Yeah. So so if you if you drove um, if I drove to work and I sat there, I'm, I'm I think it's like 35 miles for me to drive to work. If I drove to work and I sat there for two days, I would get like you know let's just say 35 miles brought back um, during okay. that time that I'm parked. Oh, so and then you're, when you're I come gaining back, as much as you need to drive. Right. Almost. And it also charges in that same way that we were talking about with the Aptera. It also charges while you're driving on top of that. Okay. Okay. So it gives you a little bit and you have a display. It's a 10.1 inch display, I think, that actually will show you. It's a very simple display. Like if you're looking for, for the, the cool things that Tesla will give you, this car does not do that. It gives you the bare minimum information that you need. But it will show you while you're driving the car that you're still like you're getting this much energy from the sun. That is so it's pretty really cool, cool that way. Hey, I'm also seeing on here that you can um, power your house from the car. Yes. So this has bi-directional charging. It has 11 kilowatts of bi-directional charging. So this is the cool thing is you, they, they have a wall box. Now, 
when we talked to Chris Ashley about his Ford, because his Ford F one fifty Lightning, it can charge, it can uh, potentially he could hook up to it and power his house. But you need like a three thousand or thirty five hundred dollar uh, piece of equipment plus whatever it costs to install to get that done. So I don't know what you need uh, to install. To install it in, you know, I don't know what additional equipment you're going to need, but you could potentially charge your house. You could also, this is really cool. If you're going to be parked somewhere and let's say uh, you're going to go out of town for a week, you don't have a garage, you park your car in the driveway. You can say in the app, you can say, hey, I'm willing to give away 20 kilowatts of energy this week and kilowatt hours. You know what? I'm very sensitive. I'm very uh, not sensitive. I'm very very self-conscious because I know Steve's going to listen to this. And yeah, that's I, I what I was about earlier. <laughs> I don't want to use the wrong terms. But uh, so somebody could come up and take that much electricity from your car. They can charge their Tesla, for instance, at 11 kilowatts. That, that whatever you set it at, if that wow. makes sense. So you get 11 kilowatts of Kilowatt speed. hours? Kilowatt hours. Well, the, the, Instantaneous the, the storage, storage is... Storage. This would be from you're you're getting it from so the kilowatt hours would be what's in the battery and the 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 transfer would be in kilowatts if i'm okay the transfer rate yeah right okay wow so that's pretty cool that's but another thing you could do is you could actually rent your car out through their app so um like tesla's wanting to do this in a similar way but it's kind of like an an airbnb or not not airbnb an uber or a Oh, yeah, yeah, Uber with self-driving and all that. Right, right. But this is, you could park your car at the local grocery store and people can come and just rent your car and you set your own rates for that. I believe you set your own rates for the electricity too. Interesting. For people to charge. And it'll make you a little bit of money. And the other thing, because, you know, batteries, um, especially like cobalt, manganese, nickel batteries, those batteries, they're not fragile because that would be a wrong term but you you don't want to be charging them to 100 percent all the time and you want to be careful with the batteries because you you don't want them to wear out the sono uh scion it uses lfp batteries which are a little bit more robust you can charge it to 100 percent more often and not have as much degradation which is what i was looking for before but um they they're not as energy dense so you have to have more of the lfp batteries uh, to More get to, to get a, the same. Yeah. Okay. Or similar range. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. And this is the last thing about this I, that I think is really cool is there's a moss in the dash. So if you look on the, the interior, there's this beautiful fluorescent green moss in the da- moss, excuse me, in the dash. And they, they won't come out and say that that does, that has any air purifying <laughs> characteristics, but it looks so cool. Okay, that, I can't, I can't find a picture of that, but I'll go I'll go hunting for the moss. I that's gross. Yeah, if you click on the car, which is at the top, yeah, at the thing, it'll okay. show you a little pic. You got to scroll down where it says sleek interior. It'll okay. show you a little picture of the moss. I don't know how that would go in Arizona because it's so oh, dry here. It's like it's like almost in a little drawer kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's like a terrarium. Yeah, yeah. Okay, this is the car for for uh, Oregon. PDX right. Kurt, you, you're going to want this car. This is going to be <laughs> that is really funny. Oh, okay, and that does show you the display though of of where, how much energy you're getting from the solar panels, um, right? And it's 
I don't, I don't want to discount this idea at all of being able to power the house. And, I, and I'm really hoping that as we go forward into the future, that we'll have built into homes the ability to charge from our vehicles. Because it, it's frustrating to Steve and me that we have between us 150,000 kilowatt hours worth of battery sitting in the garage. And we just paid 20 grand to have uh, 27 kilowatt hours stuck to the side of our house, also by yeah. Tesla. So two, two 13 and a half kilowatt hour batteries when we've got 75,000 uh, or 75 kilowatt hour batteries in the garage. Yeah. It's maddening, isn't it? It's like, I can't, and, and there is no way on the Teslas to, to no matter how much you pay to do something to your house, to reverse that and, and power your house. That seemed like that's the obvious thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Like, my personal opinion is it's not something you should probably do every day. You shouldn't be relying on that, just especially with the, the cobalt nickel manganese, because I don't know, it's an expensive battery pack to have to replace. Wait, but cobalt on nickel the other side, mag- manganese, I thought they were lithium ion. They are, but the, the rare earth metals that are in there, or oh. that's what, uh, that, that's it. So it is, it, it's just the chemistry of the lithium ion. Okay. So, um, so those batteries are much more, energy dense but they're also very expensive so the more you hit that battery the more potential you have for degradation it doesn't mean that it you're going to ruin your battery in a year or anything like that but f- for me i would be like, i'd feel more comfortable actually having a battery strapped to the side of my house yeah but yeah, i suppose like we were talking before in arizona in the summertime if for some reason i even if i'm not at work but if I, especially uh, if I might work for 48 hours, my wife and kids are at, the, at home, I would prefer to have the, you know something that they could plug into and at least have power for a little while. Yeah, yeah, it, it, absolutely. We are, uh, we are excited about it. But that is a topic for another day. I'm, I'm tempted to start talking about solar batteries, but we can't do that. It's not nope. the time. <laughs> nope. I just want to say one quick thing. This car will be out by the end of 2023, and it starts right around 25,000 euros. Wow, that is that is very cool. Um, again, not not probably the prettiest car I've ever seen. Not a mushroom nope. though. <laughs> it's it's uh it's just a practical vehicle. Like yeah. I'm I'm all for companies making ugly practical vehicles. So I like what you've given us though. Is you've given us a a, uh, a semi attractive uh, and existing vehicle with the <laughs> with the Chevy Bolt, depending on your opinion of good looking. You've given us a space age, really super cool looking one that's not here yet, but is in the in the new fu- future. And for the European market, we've got the Sono Motors Scion. Oh, that's right. PDX Kurt can't have it in in Oregon with the moss growing. You're going to have to do that in in uh, Ireland or Belgium, kids. Yeah. I mean, if you want, you could always put it on a boat and ship it over. There you go. That's going to raise your price. All right. This is, this is cool. And you promised next, uh, one of these times you will, uh, we'll do one for the uh, Asian market. And maybe we could go through the, the more practical ones that actually exist today at some point. Cause there, there's a lot on your list that you actually can get today. Correct. Yes. They just are all over 30,000. I thought we'd hit oh, something that was, was, was under, cause there's not a lot under 30. Well, that's good. I like it. All right. So people can find the Kilowatt podcast in their podcatcher of choice, and you can email Bodie at 918digital.com. If I got it all right? That is correct. At some point, I'm going to put up a website, I promise. (laughs) 
<laughs> don't try going to 918digital.com. Don't do it. Don't even go look. If you can find the merchandise store, you, you get extra points. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot for coming on, Bodie. This was cool. Uh, thank you, Allison. Appreciate it. Well, I thought that was a whole lot of fun, and I hope Buddy comes back. As more cars get into the uh, affordable category for electric vehicles. But that's going to wind us up for this week. Did you know you can email me? I've told you a few times, but I hear people still ask me, what's your email address? What's well, allison at podfee.com. If you have questions or a suggestion, just send it on over, and I almost always answer people. You can follow me on Twitter at podfee. If you want to join in the fun of this conversation, you can join our Slack community, where even Bart hangs out sometimes, podfee.com slash Slack. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com, like podfeed.com slash slack. You can support the show at podfeed.com slash Patreon or with a one-time donation at podfeed.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. And don't forget to join us at podfeed.com slash chat for the live event, or I guess it's pre-recorded event from Apple this coming Wednesday. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.